Welcome to Making Footprints, Not Blueprints, a regular podcast about matters philosophical and religious. My name is Andrew James Brown, and despite being myself an atheistically inclined freethinker, I'm also the minister to the Unitarian Church in the city of Cambridge, UK. The title of this podcast is borrowed from the philosopher Herbert Fingeret, who, in his book, The Self in Transformation, offered us studies that were outcomes rather than realised objectives, which were offered to the reader as an encouragement to make intellectual footprints, not blueprints. This podcast tries to proceed in a similar fashion and takes seriously an insight of the poet A.R. Ammons, who felt that true human freedom only comes when we have understood that full scope always eludes our grasp, that there is no finality of vision, that we have perceived nothing completely, and that, therefore, and thankfully, tomorrow a new walk is a new walk. Welcome to this week's New Walk. Sappho's time-scissored work, a new materialist meditation for Valentine's Day. I begin this podcast by reading two fragmentary love poems written by the Greek poet Sappho. She was born round about 630 BCE and died round about 570 BCE. Throughout antiquity she was held to have been one of the greatest lyric poets and, according to Plato, even perhaps the tenth muse herself. Both these fragmentary poems were translated by Willis Barnstone, and I think it will be helpful if you looked at the transcript of this podcast as I read them, because that will reveal clearly the fragmentary nature of the texts. The first poem is Aphrodite and Desire. It is not easy for us to equal the goddess in beauty of form, Adonis. Desire and Aphrodite, poured nectar from a gold pitcher, with hands persuasion. The Geraistian shrine, lovers of no one, I shall enter desire. And the second poem is called Return, Gongola. A deed, your lovely face, if not winter, and no pain. I bid you, Abanthus, take up the lyre, and sing of Gongila as again desire floats around you. The beautiful, when you saw her dress, it excited you. I'm happy. The Kipros born once blamed me for praying this word, I want. Valentine's Day is a day which, since the late 14th and early 15th century, and to the delight of florists, restaurateurs, sparkling wine, card and chocolate manufacturers everywhere, has become ever more indelibly associated in the public imagination with romantic love. However, despite the day's current pervasiveness in our culture, its origins are extremely obscure. 
For a while, some scholars thought that the day's roots might be found in an attempt to Christianise the pagan fertility festival of Lupercalia, which was celebrated in ancient Rome between the 13th and 15th of February. But despite the attractiveness of this idea, no real evidence to support this has ever been found. As to St Valentine himself, the situation is hardly any better and it remains unclear whether he is to be identified as one saint or is a conflation of two saints of the same name. But today, what we do know for sure is that time has cut up the day's sources into all kinds of fragments which, over the centuries, have slowly been woven and rewoven together in many complex and utterly contingent ad hoc ways. As it is celebrated today, like all our ancient festivals, such as Christmas and Easter, Valentine's Day is a rich, sometimes beautiful, sometimes grotesque weave of incomplete and endlessly recycling and transforming fragments. In short, it remains a day full of actual and potential meanings, and in this sense it is incredibly meaningful but it is a day within which we can find no single, abiding, stable, simple, essential, complete, central meaning. For many people this is tantamount to saying that, in truth, a festival such as Valentine's Day is deeply meaningless. The thought silently in play here is that true meaning, that which is truly meaningful, can only be found in something that is from the beginning and in its unchanging essence, something through designed, wholly planned, coherent, complete and in order. However, following the lead of the contemporary Cambridge political philosopher Raymond Goyce, it has long seemed to me that the world in which we live, quote, does not on the whole conform to the patterns which we think it would be good for it to instantiate. There is a discrepancy between how we perceive the world to be and how we think it would be good for it to be. Unquote. Indeed, as we, through the natural and social sciences, have continued to explore the question of how our world is and our place in it, we have found again and again that ours is a world which seems characterised all the way down by movement, instability, insecurity, indeterminacy and uncertainty. This means that whatever meaning we do find in the world, it is dependent upon not some underlying stable, independent grid-like structure against which everything can, in principle if not always in practice, always be accurately measured, but instead, meaning is dependent upon a reality that is characterised by constant creative motion. As the Roman poet Lucretius once pithily observed, omnia migrant, everything moves. Anyway, with all the foregoing thoughts in my mind, as we headed towards our first locked-down Valentine's Day, I couldn't but help recall the strange story about how many of the fragments of the sensuous and lyrical love poems of Sappho came to survive into our own time, and which continue to inspire and intrigue us some 2,500 years after her death. As with St Valentine, or the two St Valentines, 
very little is known about Sappho's life. But, as you heard earlier, what we do know is that her poetry was admired throughout antiquity and was included in the later Greeks' definitive list of lyric poets. Alas, despite her fame, and like so many other ancient authors, nearly all of her poetry has been lost to us, and of the more than 500 poems that she wrote, only two complete poems and about 2,000 lines which fit into intelligible fragments have survived into our own day. Although a few fragments survived in Greece itself, in 1879, in the Egyptian oasis of Fayum in the Nile Valley, a great deal of new material was discovered. Now, as you might expect, in Egypt, Sappho's poetry was written on papyri, and papyrus was also the material used to make the papier-mâché with which they wrapped their iconic mummies. When the archaeologists working on this site came carefully to unwrap these mummies, to their amazement and delight, they discovered that Sappho's poetry, along with the work of some other ancient authors, had provided much of the raw material. As one of Sappho's modern translators, Willis Barnstone, puts it, by cutting the papyri upon which the poems had been written into thin strips, quote, the mummy makers of Egypt transformed much of Sappho into columns of words, syllables or single letters, and so made her poems look, at least typographically, like Apollinaire's or E.E. E. Cummings-shaped poems. The miserable state of many of the texts has produced surprising qualities. So many words and phrases are elliptically connected in a montage structure that chance destruction has delivered pieces of strophes that breathe experimental verse. Her time-scissored work is not quite language poetry, but a more joyful cousin of the eternal avant-garde, which is always and ever new. So Sappho is ancient, and for a hundred reasons, modern. Unquote. But can a great poet, as Sappho undoubtedly was, still be considered great when her work is, from one point of view, so mangled? I think the answer is not only yes, but in certain respects, this mangling process may have helped her texts become greater. Now, how on earth might that be the case? Well, in relation to the greatness of texts and their possible meanings, you may remember something I have occasionally brought before you for consideration, something that was suggested by the contemporary philosopher Ian Thompson. Quote, What makes the great texts great is not that they continually offer the same eternal truths for each generation to discover, but rather that they remain deep enough, meaningful enough, to continue to generate new readings, even revolutionary re-readings, which radically reorientate the sense of the work that previously guided us. Unquote. What I'd like us to think about here is that the greatness of Sappho's texts, or perhaps it's better to say that the second greatness of Sappho's texts, is dependent not on their completeness, but on their very incompleteness, on their fragmentary nature. And that this greatness, their meaningfulness, 
is something that is made possible precisely because of a creative material reality in which omnia migrant. Everything is always already moving. And when you come to think about it, isn't all of human love and life itself just like this too? We know in our heart of hearts that we can never completely know either ourselves or another person. This is because we are all ourselves, always already made up of moving, shifting, contingent, entangled fragments of memory and matter, constantly being woven, unwoven and rewoven intraactively together to create all kinds of new meanings and reorientations. In other words, we are not so much beings as always becomings. And this is only possible because of a creative material reality in which, thank the ever-moving heavens, omnia migrant, everything moves. And even at the moment of death, when a life might be said to be as finished and complete as it can be, this same life story can still only ever be known incompletely by those of us who remain. At the death of a loved one, we all carefully try to gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost, because we know that these fragments, like Sappho's words, can always go on to gift our present and future imaginations with new insights, orientations, stories and poems, and indeed whole new, meaningful worlds of possibility. Anyway, for what it's worth, it strikes me that one lesson we might take from celebrating Valentine's Day with these dynamic kinetic thoughts in play is that we need not be frightened by the fragmentary, ever-moving nature of ourselves, our stories, our poems, or of reality itself, because it is precisely thanks to this endless time-scissoring movement that we are always being gifted with the freedom to be tomorrow what we are not today, and so have the chance to give and receive love again and again, until, one day, we ourselves are woven back into the creative, ever-moving stuff of life. Drawing on Lucretius, it was this insight that allowed the English poet A. E. Hausman to write his own touching love poem of sorts, and with it I end this meditation for Valentine's Day. It is poem number 32 of A Shropshire Lad. From far, from eve and morning, and yon twelve-winded sky, the stuff of life to knit me blew hither. Here am I. Now, for a breath I tarry, nor yet disperse apart. Take my hand quick and tell me, what have you in your heart? Speak now, and I will answer. How shall I help you say? Heir to the wind's twelve quarters, I take my endless way. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Making Footprints, Not Blueprints podcast. So, farewell for now, and remember, tomorrow a new walk is a new walk. See you on the path.
Thank you again for listening to the Making Footprints, Not Blueprints podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and each new podcast will be delivered to your device as soon as it is released. Also, if you'd like to join the conversation, please feel free to comment on the blog or come along to the occasional live online discussions which take place on Wednesday evenings at 7.30pm GMT. Anyone is invited to ask questions and make comments on the issues discussed in the podcast. You can find all the necessary links in the episode notes. We look forward to talking with you then.